Hey, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. You are here with uh, co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you today? I'm doing great, Andrew. This is episode what? 19. 19. Well, I want you to get right into the intro because uh, I remember this player for the Boston Bruins. Uh, he was a fan favorite. So give us the introduction. I want to get right into our guest. Yeah, absolutely. So we're very uh, excited to have special guest Darren Banks with us here today. Uh, Darren began his collegiate career in 1986 at Brock University and played for the Brock Badgers for three years. After graduating from college, he turned pro and began his journey through the ECHL. And after his first successful season, he signed a contract with the Calgary Flames. Uh, after grinding out in the minors over the next few years, he signed a deal with the uh, Boston Bruins as a free agent and appeared with the team over the course of two seasons from 1992 to 1994, um, while also playing for the Providence Bruins during that time. And he continued to play throughout various leagues until 2005 when he officially retired. He was a hard-nosed player who gave it all on the ice every single shift and certainly left impressions with many Bruins fans to come. Without further ado, welcome our guest, Darren Banks. How are you today, Darren? Thank you very much. Um, uh, thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. Great. So, um, Banksy, you grew up in Windsor, Ontario, and you learned how to skate from your mom, uh, skating on outdoor ponds and flooded parks. Is that right? Yeah, see, uh, I took the ice skating right away, and it was something my mother loved to do was ice skate. And my father, to this day, has never had a pair of skates on and, you know, probably would have had skates on if he wouldn't have been in a serious car accident when I was like three. So he never got a chance to skate, but my mother taught me how to play more or less skate. She didn't teach me how to play hockey. So you started playing hockey around age seven and, and for Canada, isn't that a late start? Isn't like most Canadian kids already playing like pre junior hockey by then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I started late, you know, it's, you know, unfortunately, like I said, my father was in a serious car accident, so he kind of wasn't a really, really around to kind of help me with, with ice hockey. But uh, the reason why I, you know, I have to thank good neighbors that we had at the time who had an older son that played hockey and they just mentioned to my mother, you know, why doesn't your son play hockey? And my mom's like, never really thought about it. He just played with the kids. And, you know, we played in a park all the time when we were younger, played outside a lot. And then uh, I just really excelled really fast. Very cool. Yeah. So you, you did play junior hockey briefly with the, the I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Leamington or Leamington Flyers. And then you went on to Brock uh, University. So what was your decision to try out college hockey instead of um, continuing with junior hockey? Yeah. I mean, there's parts on there that, you, you know, if you look up my stats, those things you don't see. And, you know, I played tier two junior A in Toronto. I was on like four teams. I was bouncing around, not really sure what to do. You know, I was, then I was 15 years old. I was actually 14. And I played junior, I played senior A, which is the guys are 25 years old. You know, yeah. so that was a little too rough for me at the time. You know, I wasn't, you know, I was, you know, six foot, but I wasn't that big. Uh, so I kind of bounced around a little bit before I kind of found my niche of what I wanted. I actually went to Bowling Green for a year. Oh, okay. And, wow. And, you know, kind of got kicked off the team. So the next year I went to Brock University and that's where it kind of really picked up for me. I didn't really go the junior route. Like most guys, I played junior B a lot. Uh, but then I got to university and then after my second year, I was ready to turn pro. And then I went back for one more year and then I turned pro after that. Gotcha. Well, on, on the topic of you uh, jumping around from teams and not just uh, from junior, but when you were professional and in the minor leagues, um, wh what is that like on a player having to, uh, you know, constantly move or if you're being loaned to a different team during a season? I mean, is that really difficult to adjust to? 
it, it is if you're married. You know, if, if you're married, it's hard to move your family around like that. But if you're single and if you have and you know, personality and attitude like I did, I didn't care. I was to me, it was like, oh, this is a new city. I'm willing to try it out. Type Sweet. So moving me around wasn't a big deal. I mean, I mean, my career, I've got a lot of teens and but it was fun. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it was uh, an absolute blast that I had. Awesome. So making it to the NHL is, you know, a feat that only elite athletes achieve. What does it take both physically and mentally to play in the NHL? Well, you got to be willing to put sacrifice everything you have. Uh, I mean, you've got to go out there and willing to sacrifice your body and, you know, and that's not just in a game. It might be in a practice. Uh, you've got to kind of give up any other type of life or activity that you have if you want to stay there, you know, and I bet you're pretty sure the guys, not those, you know, the McDavid's or the Gretzky's and stuff like that, who are very well, very good players at a really young age. But those middle of the road guys, they had to work every day. You got to work your butt off every day. And if you're in my, you know, like my father used to always tell me, get on that score sheet somehow. I don't care how you get on it, but get on it. And for me, it seemed like it seemed to be fighting. So yeah. <laughs> I got my name on the score sheet somehow. Well, we we had um, Bobby Robbins. I don't know if you know Bobby Robbins. He played with the Bruins uh, for like three or four games in 2014. And, uh, and, He's like the oldest rookie in the NHL. He was like 30, 32, 32 when he finally got his call up. Um, and he talked about that same thing, the sacrifice. And he was just, but he said that he always had it in his, in his head that he was going to make it to the NHL, even though that everybody else might say, you're not a, a skilled player or this or that. And, and he was more of an enforcer guy as well, but he was like, I'm going to make it to the NHL. Now it took him until age 32, but yeah. you know, he, it seems to be that common theme of you're not going to make it in the NHL unless you just grind it out. And, and not too many people like us don't understand those sacrifices and the mental will, I guess, to make it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of naysayers and I had them when I was younger and I do like, you know, I'm going to play in the NHL. I don't know how many games I'm going to play, but you play one game, you play 1,000 games. People don't forget who you are. You know, you've uh, you achieved that goal that your childhood dream that you wanted to do. And, it, you know, if you really want it bad enough, you can do it. And, if, and sometimes you might not be that skilled guy, but you've got some attribute that some team needs or some team wants, and you just do it at your best ability. But, you know, I don't think – I mean, you know, there's always been hockey, especially the 70s, talking about the enforcers or the, quote, goons, but – I, I just don't see that even these guys who, you know, like yourself were the antagonators, the tough guys on the team. I mean, you were lighting it up at, you know, the all three seasons with your college team um, in the IHL. I mean, you weren't just fighting just to fight. I mean, you also were putting the puck in the net and you were being productive on the team. It just doesn't seem to be like, you know, there's no really goons in the NHL. You've got to play the total game. You might specialize in that. But you got to produce, isn't that right? Yeah, and, and the game's changed. I mean, from when we played, it was more physical game. I mean, to me, I, when I watch the games today, if I was playing in a league, I wouldn't wear shoulder pads. They, <laughs> you know, they barely check each other. Back in our day, we're trying to kill each other, you know, <laughs> but that was the way it was played, and we were having fun. But you got to be able – I mean, every single guy, I guarantee you, you could take a tough guy in, in any team right now, and he might have been a 25, 30 goal scorer in junior. 
but then all of a sudden his role changed a little bit. And even your, you know, your Bob Proberts, who he scored, he scored 30 goals, I think one year in the NHL, but most time he's like, you know, 10, 15 goals, but he had 25, 30 goals in junior. So those roles have changed, but you know, it, again, the game's changed a lot compared to back when we were playing. Right. So you had signed with the Boston Bruins as a, a free agent and a fan question I've always wanted to ask is, and I know it's probably much different now than it was back in the day, but what is it like being a free agent and going through that process? I mean, do the Bruins give you a random call, you know, to your agent or to yourself and you got to fly out and check it out? I mean, how does that process work? Yeah, my process is kind of funny as I was living in Salt Lake because I played there for three years and I got mm -hmm. a phone call from Mike Milbury and back then there's no cell phones. So a message on the phone, Mike Milbury's call from the Boston Bruins. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Why is he calling me? Call my agent. Like, don't call me. But, you know, and then he called the next day. And then I happened to be home at the time. And I'm like, and Mike Milbury. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how can I help you? And he was more or less like, do you want to play for the Bruins? And I'm like, of course I do. You know, but I go, well, you got to talk to my agent. But I actually flew out to Boston. Um and was like kind of milling things over because at the same time san diego was in the league in the ihl and they wanted me to play in san diego and the money was actually almost better in san diego <laughs> than playing in the nhl but there was no way that i would opt out to go play in san diego so i remember i went back home and then you know it was time for training camp i came out maybe about four or five days beforehand and you know, it was in my mind that whoever's job out there I need to take, I was going to do it, you know, and I went out there and I, I, you know, I, I kind of went crazy, but then I got to play with like Adam Oates. He was my sermon for most of training camp. I remember like play, you know, the exhibition games I was playing. I was like, I was scoring goals like crazy. And I was like, this NHL is not that hard. <laughs> you awesome. know, I'm playing with one of the best assist guys to ever play the game. And then I, you know, it was then it was Dave Poole, and then it, it, my line ended up being, uh, oh my God, Brent Hughes. And I can't remember who our centerman was, but we had Glenn Murray, Teddy Donato, Stevie Hines. So there was a lot of Dimitri Clark. Well, there was a lot of young guys on the team at the time. So, uh, but Ray Bork was back there. And, you know, I have so much respect for that guy. I mean, I've never seen a guy, coach say something in the dressing room, and most guys' heads were down. And Ray Bork say something, everybody perked right up. So it was kind of, it was, it was great experience for me at the time. Well, I, I want to, uh, it's a question I was going to ask later, but I'll, I'll ask it now. So um, when we were talking to Bobby Robbins, who finally made it to the Bruins, um, we asked him, what was it like for the first time being in the locker room? And he said, uh, it didn't matter if it was my first game or my 20th year. Uh, you know, Zeno Char, the captain, uh, welcomed me in. And the attitude was, it doesn't matter if you were just brought up or whatever the case, you made it. Everybody's more or less equal on this team in this locker room. Was that sort of uh, the experience you had when you, you know, finally made it into that NHL game? Yeah. I mean, and I played some exhibition games with Calgary beforehand. So it was the same thing. I had Doug Gilmore and Al McGinnis. And I remember the, the veterans, I almost made Calgary the year before the veterans took me out for lunch and they pulled a prank on me. And they each went to the bathroom and left me with the bill, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, I come back outside and then going back to where the car is, I had to pay the bill. And, you know, it was like 600 bucks for lunch or something crazy <laughs> like that. You know, like a millionaire guys are running away on me and they were <laughs> around the corner. 
<laughs> you know, laughing, but you know, they welcoming you in just like you'd been there forever. And it's a great feeling. And it's something you have to do with, and I have done it my, you know, all my years that I played when you had rookies come in as you got to open arms for them, you know, you can't ostracize them. You, know, you got to make them feel like a team because some of them might be real nervous. I wasn't nervous, but um, it was, it was, it was great. It was a great experience. Awesome. So you're on the Boston Bruins now. Um, and, and we do have to say, uh, you know, thank you again to our uh, sponsor, Black and Gold Hockey. Uh, we are mostly a uh, Bruins-focused podcast, but we do cover all of hockey. We also have to throw in our this week's sponsor, uh, Brian Props, uh, Gaffaw Cigars. We want to uh, say if you're looking for a good cigar, go out to Gaffaw Cigars, uh, Dominican-made cigars, Brian Prop. We want to thank him as well. So the Bruins... What was it like to play in the old Boston God? Amazing. You know, it was, a, it was a rink that players couldn't escape on. So it's for a guy like me, it was like, you can't, other players out there can't escape from me. I was able to hit them as much as I wanted. Uh, the crowd was, you know, I never seen fans like that in any arena, back, at least back in those days, that they just loved their hockey team. And so much appreciation for the hockey fans. And I mean, I remember a game where I got Marty McSorley cross-checked me in the face and I went off the ice and I came back and they stitched me up and I came back to the bench and I skated along. You remember the old garden, you skate along the boards. Well, the coach couldn't see me. And, you know, next, you know, I'm on the bench and the crowd's going nuts. And he's like, what the hell's going on? And then <laughs> finally he sees me and he goes, get out there. Well, at the time my when I first sat down, I was okay, but then my eye completely closed. So I couldn't see anything on the right side of my body. So it was kind of, it was kind of surreal feeling, but the crowd was going nuts and it was just, it was a great moment, but you know, I, at this time I could only play one shift because after that I couldn't see. Well, so, the, uh, from the fan experience here, and uh, we talked a little uh, before the show, I, I remember your first game. I remember you making a huge impact with the with the with the Bruins and with the fans. Now, of course, the tough guy, the enforcer is always, you know, a fan favorite. But, you know, you you covered a, a, a hole. If I remember, you know, Kim Neely was out around this time. You were filling that hole of, of physicalness out on the ice where the Bruins used to intimidate a lot of the opponents and being in the garden where the balconies, you know, right on the players. It was an intimidating building. But I specifically remember when you were playing in 92 to 94, you were definitely a, a fan favorite. And uh, it's uh, great to actually have you here on Zoom to meet you. But Andrew's got your next question. But I wanted to throw that out there because I'm not the only, you know, guy who's 52 years old that remembers you playing in 92 and 93. There's a lot of our listeners who are like, hey, you got to say something to Darren Banks about <laughs> you know, remembered him playing because it was, it was great. Andrew? And a lot of that came from, Darren, your very first game uh, when you had the, probably the most memorable fight of your career is what a lot of Bruins fans uh, think at least with Scott Daniels. Uh, do you remember that moment, how that fight was set up? I mean, you beat him up pretty good too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, believe it or not, it, it kind of started a little earlier in the game and I, I was running everybody. And I remember I ran Adam Burt. And then Jim McKenzie on their team came after me and another guy came after me and I was trying to swing at anybody I could get my hands on. And it was like a, almost like a five on five brawl. And I kind of started it. 
And then later on in the ice, Scott Daniels says, you want to go? And I said, you betcha. <laughs> you know, so we went at it. And it, it's kind of funny because we're good friends now. And, you know, we talk and he'll go, you joked me. And I said, oh, I joked you. So then I'll pull out the tape and send it to him. I'll send <laughs> the video. And I say, at what point did I jump you here? <laughs> you know, so, so it was, it was, that was one of my memorable games that I remember playing, especially the first game of the season against Hartford. So, you know, fighting some of the toughest guys back in the day, I mean, you fought Tony Twist, you know, McSorley, who, and I'm not even talking about NHL, who was the toughest guy just off the top of your head that you remember to fight? The toughest guy was probably Tony Twist. He threw the absolute hardest punches that I've ever seen a guy try to throw. It was like he was throwing a punch to go through the back of your head. And he, I fought him three times in back-to-back games. And it was like literally like a battle. And, 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 uh, and now you got to know us, the fighters in the league pretty much respect all each other. There's none, you know, there's no animosity. We all got a job to do and we understand that. And well, I mean, I used to play against a guy in every single game I played against my father and he's one of my best friends. Wow. Is, is sort of, you know, talking about the so-called what they call the code these days, um, you know, one of the uh, our guests we had on talked about uh, part of the code sometimes is when you don't want to fight or, you know, you don't want to fight right off the face off circle center eyes. You want to wait. But, you know, a player may come up and say, hey, Banksy, you got to You got to give me one right now. The coach is on me. And you're just like, hey, not now. And they're like, no, you got to give it to me now or I might not play. And you give it to him. You, you fight, but you do it because you might be in that position someday to say, Hey, I need to, I need to go here. I need to get on the score sheet or whatever. Is that sort of uh, like what it was like in the nineties? Oh yeah. Def- most definitely. There was, you know, me coming in the league, you know, I'm going to go after the toughest guy they got on their team, whoever it might've been. And I remember one and, you know, and again, we all kind of know each other pretty well. And I wanted to fight Joey Kosher, you know, he was a, kind of a legend in the league he was at the Rangers at the time. And he's like, Banksy, I can't. He goes, my hands are messed up today. There's no chance of me fighting at all. And there were some, you know, and Joey, you know, I respected him. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to bother. But I would just go after somebody else in the team. And there's usually back then there was two or three guys that could go. So, you know, you gave them a reason. You know, if I ran too many guys in their team, somebody's got to come after me, at least back in the day. Now it doesn't happen so much, but back then you had to do it. But it was, there was definitely a code that way. But then you had some guys. We just took liberties on each other and, you know, you would just go get them later. So um, some of our guests kind of talk about their approach to fighting was sort of you become an animal. You have to psych yourself up. And, you know, one of our guests kind of talked about when I go to fight, I pretend that the guy I'm fighting is trying to murder my family. And I'm, you know, and I instantly have to switch it on with this rage of, like you said, putting your hand through the guy's face. Um, what was some of the preparation that you would go through? Would, would that thought go through your head or was it more like, I'm just going to go out there and be, you know, maniac, start swinging, grab anybody. I mean, what was going through your head? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. You used to get the program and look, especially if you never played a team, you'd look at the program and go, well, who's this guy? He's got 200 minutes already, or he's got this many minutes already. So you were kind of judging them that way if you didn't know them. Or if you knew them and you played them before, you're like, okay. But I kind of had a juggle and high personality. 
I'm the most lovable guy in the world, smiling all the time. Even on the ice, I'd be smiling. But then all of a sudden, my I don't know if my eyes rolled back in my head or what was going on, but I would just, a switch would go off and it was on. And then it was completely over with when the fight was over. You know, so wow. I, I was never afraid, but there was a lot of guys will tell you that it's not a so mostly unthankful job that was in, in the NHL where guys that had to fight for their teammates. And it was, uh, you know, some guys understood it and some guys didn't, you know, the, you know, the job that we have, but the guys that understood, especially the ones you're, you're protecting most of the time, they're the ones that understood it the most. So my wife always wants me to ask this question whenever we have a guest who's, who's been more of an, an enforcer type role on a team. Um, you know, we now live in Tulsa, even though we're big Bruins fans, we live in Tulsa. So my wife is an Okie girl. And she's now into hockey. She loves it. But she says, can you please explain to me how two guys can literally want to knock the crap out of each other. But the minute the fight's over, it's done. It's over with. And they're like ready to go out and have a beer. You know, yeah, like, tap how, each how other do, on the shoulder. How does that happen? Fight. Yeah, it's, it's our job. It's all it is. It's a job. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, it's our job. We have to go out there and perform a position that they want done or the, or things are needed. And back in our day was a lot of intimidation, you know, so if you could intimidate that other team and now I got a guy scared to go in a corner when we've got the puck or won't go near you gave my centerman a little bit more room than, then I've done my job. So again, we're, we got, we don't hate each other. There might be a few guys that don't like dislike each other and they will definitely fight every time we play, but they won't go, you know, kick him in the face or something like that while he's down. That's just, you know, it's, it's just an unwritten rule. So this season so far and, you know, on the topic of fighting and, and how, of course, the game has changed uh, significantly uh, since you played, Darren, um, do you see um, fighting uh, increasing in hockey? Because it's actually up 3% this year, according to hockeyfights.com. There's uh, 20% um, chance of a fight happening during a day of an NHL game. Um, do, do you see it leaving soon or do you see it increasing or where do you see fighting in hockey? Now? Well, I think the reason why it's increasing this year is because these teams are creating rivalries, rivalries right. amongst each other. So it's the same teams playing each other over and over and over again. And one team's got to take advantage of the other one. And sometimes it might be a fight. That's the only way. Or, you, you know, a guy ran you last night. You just can't let him take advantage of you like that. So I think that's why there might be an increase this year. People keep saying, let's take fighting out of hockey. It's been the game for over 100 years. you got to be an idiot to do something like that. Right. Um, it's always been there. And I don't care if there's 20,000 fans in the arena. Every single time there's a fight, everyone stands up and watches it. Right. So, everyone might not stand up for a goal, but they stand up for a fight. And they love right. it. Why do they like UFC, one of the biggest sports out there? Because it's fighting. Why do they, you know, all these sports that are violent. Even car racing. I wouldn't watch a car race unless I knew there was going to be a, cra a crash yeah. in it. I don't hurt that someone gets killed, but I want to see a crash. Right, right. The excitement of it. So I think people all enjoy it. They might not understand it. And they'll be like, why are they fighting? Why are they, this is the only sport they fight? But they seem to enjoy it. No matter what they might say, they all watch it. And I think they enjoy it. So you have guys like, uh, you know, Tom Wilson or, or Ryan Reeves who, you know, aren't necessarily – I would have considered back then maybe more of an enforcer. I mean, some of the guys like Wilson has a lot of skill, but 
do you see the role of an enforcer starting to come back with some of these guys that are still in this league that, you know, like a Nicholas Delorier or anything, or do you think that those guys are even more on their way out now? Well, the, the league's trying to take it out. They're slowly trying to take it out, but they're still getting a Conor McDavid gets in a fight once in a while, you know, you don't see really see Obi, but you see TJ Oshie get in a fight, you know, right. but these guys know they can still do it. And if they're mad enough, they'll still do it. Um, the whole thing is, you know, it's become the player safety and concussions. But one of the things the league has done, I don't know if it's a great, it's a good idea, I guess, for a concussion is guys helmets come off. He's got to go directly off the ice. Right. So if he gets in a fight and his helmet comes off, the referees jump in right away. Back in our day, my helmet could come, everything in my body could come off, and, yeah, and right. like, you know, this the fight wouldn't get ended. And then that's part of it. I mean, and seriously, I was in my whole career, I was never knocked out on the ice. I might have been a little dizzy and might have concussion, but didn't know it. Um, there's probably more concussions from guys getting hit than right. from a fight. So, not many guys get hurt from it, and you sure as hell don't feel it when it happens. Yeah, a lot of uh, players we hear about, uh, they may get their bell rung, but uh, again, it's not maybe a concussion, but uh, other injuries like uh, shoulder injuries are, are more common, I guess, with, uh, with, with fighting than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I've had three surgeries on my right shoulder, two on my left. I mean, that's where that had, and then, you know, broken bones in your hand and stuff like that. But that was part of the game. That's, you know, you I chose to play this game and I chose to do that. So it's, it's up to me, I guess, if you don't want it, if you don't want that to happen, go play baseball. So, right. so regarding it, something like that, the helmet rule coming off and them having to jump in with the fight um, to prevent more concussions from, from fights. Do you uh, agree with that rule? Because I, I know that back then, I mean, it was common that they both agreed to take off their helmet because they didn't want to break their hands. Um, do yeah. you think that that's a good rule? Or do you think more guys are probably going to hurt their hands now that the helmets are always on? Well, the guys taking their helmet off, that was because guys had visors on. And that's why they were taking their helmets off. Um, and it was the younger kids doing that. Like, I mean, not when I played, nobody. And if I guy had fought a guy with a visor, I'd actually enjoy it because I knew I could cut him if he had the visor on. <laughs> right. <laughs> I might cut my hand, but I knew I could probably had a better chance of cutting him with his visor on because once it went over his face, there's nothing he could do. Right. So, you know, again, it's all player safety and, and I and I agree with it. And again, they back when I played, you got a concussion. They didn't really do anything for you or they didn't no education there. And it's glad that they finally figured it out because there are some guys who get permanent damage from concussions, but they're not from fights. They're from getting hit really hard, too far away from the boards. And now they've taught these they're teaching these kids the wrong way to play hockey, to turn your back to a guy. Well, Things happen in a split second. You can't turn your back to them or the guy's going to run you from behind, you know? So that's where they're, they're teaching the kids the wrong way with some of those things like that. I think with body checking, if they want them to check, but then now they're waiting till they get older, which is not a good idea because the younger kids, you know, some grow and some don't. Right. And, you know, with the game being faster, maybe even bigger guys, but you're also getting these quicker calls I mean, these these slashing penalties and the hold seem just ridiculous. And it almost seems like some of the players are getting frustrated with that. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if if and, and if calls aren't going to be made while other calls are being made quicker. It just seems like the players are going to start policing things. And maybe that's why we see a little bit of an increase. I, I, I don't know. But it seems like 
you know, it's, it's a faster game, take out the two line offside, slow the game down um, and just be a little bit more tougher. I mean, I, I hate to say, it, but I think there's more of a pussification today in the NHL. You have these star players uh, that are being coddled and uh, you know, you take like Tortorella who's, you know, he arguing with all his young stars. They want to be traded. I don't want to play under this, you know, whatever. It just seems like the game's kind of changing, but then you get the guys that have been battling it in the minors and sort of earning the, uh, you know, earning their stripes, so to speak. They're not the ones kind of bitching and complaining, but is it always been like that? Or is this kind of a new thing? This is definitely a new thing. And I talk, I, again, most of the coaches in the league nowadays are guys that I played against or played with. And, you know, I've had some conversations with some of them and they're said, I said, you guys don't seem to yell at these guys or if they make a mistake, they don't get benched. You know, back in our day, you screwed up. Coach tell you have a seat and sit there and think about it for 10 minutes or five minutes, whatever. Right. Now it's Johnny, you did this wrong. Try to do it this way next time. But if you yell at them, you push them away. You better be ready to hug them with two hugs after that. That's <laughs> le- le- legitimately. That's what these guys are telling me. And I said, it's got to be so difficult for you guys to coach when you got to coddle every single player and you don't see the guys getting benched, but a guy like Tortorella does bench a player. You know, he's not taking this line A kids, you know, and I've heard a big story on him the other day where, you know, he thought he played an okay game. And you're one of the stars in the team. He played three minutes in the third period. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders off. And um, Tortorella doesn't put up with that. You no. bring me your all. If you're the star player, you show me that you're a star. If you're not, then you don't play. And I, I like to see that approach. Then coddling every guy. And, you know, they make mistakes like things that we would get crucified for. That it's like, Johnny, don't do that. Where... If you set Johnny in the bench, he gonna learn. He won't, he doesn't do that next time. So do you think then, you know, I was wondering because Tortorella is benching line A and everything else. And um, do you think that the GM at some point is going to feel pressure that, yeah, Tortorella is maybe getting a little crazy with benching him or whatever. Do you think that there's going to be a point that maybe the GM is like, we're done with that. We don't like that style anymore. Our star player, especially if line A happens to complain, which I'm just assuming, but. Would that do you think that'd be a problem? Yeah, but then you got to go back. Why didn't Winnipeg let him go? Right, <laughs> he's a good right. player, but he only plays when he feels like playing, and it's pretty obvious to people. And I've talked to some coaches I know in the league, and they actually call him a coach killer because oh. he is. He's he doesn't he doesn't try, and I mean, yeah, everybody. There's nobody that doesn't see this. If anyone can't see it, and if a GM smart problem is you've paid him so much money. You can't just send them away. Like, you know, you can try and you either force them or you bench them. And if you bench them, he can shrug as short as he wants, but then you can start setting them out. And the teams aren't going to like it, but you can't trade them again because who's going to take them? You know, so it's a hard position they took. And I think they thought that him going there to Tortorella would be be able to hopefully change him, but Mm. he hasn't really showed it yet. Yeah, no, no. We see that, uh, you know, we season ticket holders here in Tulsa to see the ECHL Oilers here in Tulsa. And, um, you know, we see these two way players that have been, uh, you know, second round, third round picks uh, with Anaheim. That's who the the major league is here. Uh, But they come down and they're making six hundred thousand dollars a year 
playing for Tulsa while you've got, you know, uh, one of the guys who wasn't drafted and trying to make the, you know, make it, he's making 40 grand a year. I would imagine with some of these players that are making big bucks compared to players that aren't, that that can be kind of uh, frustrating for some of the players on the team. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the same way when I was in the minors, you know, you making say 30 grand and you got a guy on your team making 120 because he's a first round draft pick and he's not really doing anything. But the only thing you can do is go out there and play your game and just try to be better at it. And, and, and you can't worry about it. The, the pins are going to fall where they fall. Uh, and hopefully you get that right team, that right look. It, and, you know, you might not be on the right team. And I, that's how I always felt with the Bruins is, yes, I was, I appreciate it. It was great. But with the way Boston was with money, trying to save money all the time. And if you're on a two-way and he's on a one-way, the one-way guy's not going down. And it doesn't matter how well you play. I mean, when that second year I was there, Cam Neely never played a back-to-back game. And that back-to-back game played, I had to play it, no matter where I was playing. So I played, I think I played one time, I played six games in six nights. <laughs> wow. You know, I was on a pace to play of like 120 games that year. And then, you know, unfortunately I got hurt, but it was, uh, it was insane. Like it was going to, it was going to be a long, long year and a really sore body at the end, I think at the end of the year. Wow. So Darren, moving on from the NHL days and everything, I did want to talk about this before our last final questions. So following your retirement, I had read that you eventually became involved with the, the hockey in the hood tournament, which was started by Willie O'Ree, um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what the mission is behind um, the Hockey in the Hood tournament? Yeah, and I, I start. I was in uh, Detroit because I'm from Windsor area, so it's right next to Detroit, and I'm a Red Wing alumni member also. And Hockey in the Hood and Willie O'Ree came about, and I can't remember some of the other people answered, Carter. And so we're, really it's trying to help the youth in underprivileged areas play hockey. In low, they they've seen it, or some haven't seen it live at all. And now we're given the opportunity to have some equipment to go out there and play. And there's some kids that are really pro- progressing. They've never played hockey in a day in their lives. They might be 12 years old, so having a really late start and learning how. So now you know Philadelphia's got some programs, and it's all with Willie O'Ree. But it's a great thing. I mean, there's kids that were parents now that couldn't afford hockey equipment. And to play travel hockey, I mean, I think now it probably costs a parent close to 10 grand at the minimum. And that's on the low end for a kid to play. And if you got a, you know, single parent that lives in, you know, in an impoverished area, he's not, that, you know, that person won't be able to afford that. And so they're finding ways for those kids to, uh, to be able to play. And the ones that do really well, they will go further. And I think there's some kids in Philly. There might be a kid, a few kids in Toronto or in Detroit that are kind of making, you know, the East Coast League or something like that or higher. Very cool. That's awesome. Well, you want to do the lightning round questions? Well, yeah, we got one more question before we do this quick lightning round with you. Um, besides the NHL, what was the best league you played for? Best league and best team was probably Detroit Vipers. And the only reason why it was in the IHL the owner of our team owned the Detroit Pistons at the time. So our team, we had our own team playing. So we flew to Kalamazoo. It took us 17 minutes to get there. Um, so it was, it was unbelievable. We were treated first class. 
uh, it was for me at one point, it was like better than playing in the NHL because we were treated so well and we had great coach, great GM and just a great team. I mean, we lost 17 games all year. It was, uh, it was a great, it was a fun time to play. And And, so, and and for our younger listeners, the IHL was, it's tough to say, but a good analogy would be it's equivalent to the AHL of today. As a matter yeah. of fact, I, I think back in the day there was it was they even the AHL, they even right? tried that well they competed with the AHL and I think the IHL got absorbed into the AHL eventually. But gotcha. Yeah, the IHL was actually it was almost like the East Coast League is now. It was a, a really rough, rough, rough league, and then they started getting affiliations with the NHL and at the same time was competing with the AHL. But the older players were going to the IHL because most teams were in the West Coast. Gotcha. Nice, nice. So, Darren, uh, last question before that lightning round. So, I, I did want to ask this. Is there any player in the NHL right now, given that you're back in the 90s and in your prime on the Bruins, is there anybody in the NHL right now that you think could give you a run for your money in a fight? In a fight? In a fight. A hockey fight. Yep. I mean, today. How old, how old are you? 24. <laughs> There's not a kid in this league. Maybe Ryan Reeves because he's so much bigger. But – the only problem is if he fought me, he's fighting two other guys if he beats me. And good luck. They only have one player. So, no, I don't think so. That's awesome. And, and, and watching Darren play in his prime, right. I would agree with him at yeah. all. I mean, you were just a monster. I mean, you, you just – you were so big, uh, but yet you were agile. I mean, yeah, no, no. Reeves, I don't think, would hold a candle to Probably him. not. No. No. Well, okay. Uh, we would like to go to a lightning round. So – um, we're going to ask quick questions, but it doesn't mean you've got to give us a quick answer. It's usually whatever comes to your mind. Okay. All right. All right. So um, your favorite player to play with. Great work. Favorite player to play against. Wayne Gretzky. Oh, um, let's see the arena you played in where you first thought I finally made it. Boston Garden. Toughest goalie to play against? Uh, Dominic Hasek. Yeah, it's yeah. a good one. Good one. Uh, the best coach that you played on? In the NHL? Anywhere. Steve Ludzik in the IHL. That's ah. awesome. Um, well, I, he's a toss-up. Him and Bob Francis, probably the toss-up. Bob okay. Francis. Yeah. Um, what player got under your skin the most? Doesn't have to be NHL. Under my skin the most, Gino Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> the funniest or craziest thing that happened to you in a game? <laughs> I went to check a guy and I missed him and the door to the bench was open and I hit the backboards on the bench and the coach said, good change. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, Last lightning round question. I know this is kind of broad. I'm sure you've got plenty of of great memories, but is there anything when somebody say, what's your greatest hockey memory? Is there anything that just pops up in your head? My greatest memory is the first game in the Boston Garden. I had so many chills playing that game. That's awesome. The start of the game. After it started, I was okay. Awesome. Um, are you are you part of the Bruins alumni? Yes, I am. Okay, good. And have you ever played any games? Or are you? I mean, you're in Vegas, so probably you don't get a chance to get out there. I played three or four last year, or I don't know if it was last year or the year before, whatever this COVID thing is. 
So it seems like these older original six teams, they have these alumni associations. So um, it seems to be uh, more of a, of a trend. So what's it like, you know, with these alumni groups? I mean, I know they're doing good, but it seems like it don't matter if you're Ray Bork or if you're, you know, Bobby Robbins and played two games with the Bruins, it's uh, come one, come all. Are they really that good of organizations fun to be around? Yeah, they're awesome. I'm part of two right now. Well, three counting the NHL alumni, and I'm actually in Vegas, and we're getting ready to start a Vegas. It's going to get announced by the next month. Vegas is going to have a alumni here shortly. Really Very cool. Well, speaking of Vegas, you're doing a lot of cool things in the casino industry, and you're currently at Circa. What are you doing there? So I'm at the Circa, the D, and the Golden Gate are the properties of Derek and Greg Stevens, and I'm the VIP executive host. Cool. So you take care of all the high rollers, all the guys and girls coming in and whatever they need you take care of yeah and i play golf with them and i do just about anything so you're putting that sociology degree to work is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure I don't know. does that make me a thinker <laughs> yeah if you want to put it that way <laughs> well darren we've been through uh, a tough times in closing here so we've all been through tough times in the past year or so Every day we hear negativity everywhere we turn. We're putting you on the spot, but put on your coach inspirational captain hat on here and, uh, and send us off with a positive message here this week. My positive message is for everyone to really love each other, welcome each other. We're all going through the same difficult and tribulations and trials right now. Um, the only way we're going to get through this is we kind of stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy life. Awesome. Well, very good. We really appreciate you coming on, Darren. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And today. Darren, if you just hang on, we're going to just stop the recording and uh, we'll just say goodbye off air. But we do want to thank you for being on our podcast here today. Thank you, guys. I'll do it anytime you like. Okay, Andrew. Yeah. Darren Banks, Banksy. Great guy. If you don't know who he is, if you've ever seen him play from back in the 90s, look him up on YouTube. Obviously, you'll probably mostly find his fight videos, but guy was tough. He gave it it all every shift. I mean, hearing how he just came to the ice, sounds like he was like the ultimate professional when it came to doing his job on the ice like that. I mean, he was just always doing his job well out there. So. He, he did, and like he said, since he was a two-way you know, contracted player, it's, you know, it's tough to, you know, stay up into the big league, so to speak. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't have time to bring this up with him, but, uh, you know, he kind of got blackballed, uh, by, uh, the Bruins then, um, assistant GM, uh, Michael Connell, who, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't get along when O'Connell was coaching Providence and, uh, he was Harry Sinden's golden boy you know, Mike O'Connell, and he went on to be a general manager until he was fired after, um, I think it was the uh, Joe Thornton trade. Gotcha. But, um, you know, and and it's tough, and I didn't want to put him on the spot, even though he said you can ask me anything you guys want, I'll, I'll answer questions. But um, I just didn't get a chance to ask him about that, of, you know, what happened, because I do believe he had a little bit of trouble finding work in the NHL. I mean, he didn't, I think he played on the Rangers one or two games, mm -hmm. Uh, but it was mainly, if I remember right, because of being kind of, you know, putting on the, the naughty shit list with, uh, you know, by Michael Connell and maybe some of the Bruins organization. So I think he was very kind of only telling us his positive experience with the Bruins, because I, I think there's also some negative as far as 
the uh, management at that time goes. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and dad, the, the, the big thing that, you know, with these interviews with these guys, especially the uh, so-called enforcers from, from back in those days, you know, for, for players who their job was to fight, to try and put, as, as Darren said, their fist through the back of your head, the nicest guys, Bobby was, Darren's nice. And it's crazy how, you know, these super, super tough guys, you know, they're only like that on the ice. So they're, for our, our fellow listeners, our loyal listeners here, who's been following us uh, with episode 19. Episode 19. Um, yeah, we're, we're starting to uh, make a lot of headway and having great guests. And uh, uh, Banksy was our fourth guest. And we have some other guests coming up. Yes. Uh, so we can announce some guests coming up. So next week we are uh, on schedule to talk to our ECHL um, Allen, American, I think he got his jersey retired down there in Allenton, Texas. Right. Um, Gary Stefas, I'm going to have to find out how to pronounce his last name. But uh, he's coming on board. Then the next week we're going to have, who we got coming up? Shane Corson. Ah, the old Montreal Canadian and Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, we're going to have Shane Corson. We're going to talk to him, uh, obviously, about his career, but we're going to delve into the 80s, um, into the early 90s Bruin-Montreal rivalry. I want to ask him a bunch of questions about what it was like sort of uh, from the enemy's perspective. (laughs) Yep. And then uh, after uh, Shane Corson... We'll have another guest, Gary Steffes, right? No, no, that's next week. That's next week, Gary Steffes. Terry Virtue. Terry Virtue. Ex-Bruin player, played a couple games with the Bruins and had a, a, a long career in the minors, so he played for a long time. And we're excited to have all these guests and to have different types of players, you know, different roles to come on here and hearing, you know, how – that's just awesome to hear these stories from these guys. And we'll try to do a podcast as well, talking about some relevant Bruins information – Right. But, Once uh, the Bruins play again, too, unfortunately. Right. Oh, and right now sad. with the Bruins, uh, they're right. They're on out on COVID, COVID yep. protocol. So uh, we will end the show here. Give us a, a, a five star rating and, and a good review on Apple Podcasts. We're following everywhere. Um, I heard with the Brian Prop interview we did last week that we did break into the Apple podcast, something chart rankings of 87. I got to notice that in hockey podcast. So we made it uh, now that's, before, before we made it to 104. Right. Now we, we broke into 87 in the U S in the U S and now we're what we also, for the first time broke or we charted in Canada for hockey. We podcasts. did. Yeah. What, 120 or something. Know, something, like, so, something like that. Yeah. We appreciate everybody continuing to give us the support and, Supporting our father and son hockey podcast show. Yeah, we're having a good time. We're asked questions uh, that we think fans, which is what we are, would ask these players. And these players are just uh, phenomenal human beings. And, you know, they get nothing for doing these interviews. And they're doing it for the love of hockey and to give back to the fans. So we want to thank them as well. So without further ado, we'll just call it a day here. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Episode 19 is a wrap. Have a wonderful day and have a great week. Take care. Love each other, like Darren said. Exactly.